And the left concludes, these are the perfect people for us to trample. Why? Because this is the party of the namby-pambies and the pussies and the losers and the people who will never do to us what we intend to do to them. We can rest, says the left, secure in the knowledge that if we take away their First Amendment rights and they have supreme power, they will never take away ours. We can pack the court, let's add four more members, because we're absolutely positive that even if they came into power, they wouldn't pack the court. They believe it should be nine. They're, they're committed to nine. So even if our project fails, no big deal, because it's going to impose no political cost on us whatsoever. We are in a predicament because of the kind of people we are politically. And my message is, we will stop being in this situation when we start becoming a little different kind of a person. And my example for tonight is none other than Abraham Lincoln. You see Lincoln on a train, he's enveloped in smoke, and he's signing what historians today call the Order of Retaliation. Order of Retaliation, 1863. I now summarize rather than quote. It basically says, for every black Union soldier captured and executed by the Confederacy, one Confederate captive will be shot. Now, I ask you, why would Abraham Lincoln, a moderate man, selected from the moderate wing of the party, he was chosen over Seward because Seward was seen as a little too fanatical. Lincoln was, in today's parlance, a bit of a rhino. And yet, this moderate man makes an order of such barbarity that today, it shocks the conscience, it would not survive the Geneva Convention, it would be deemed a war crime. Why would Lincoln do it? I think the answer, if you think about it, is really simple. And there's only one answer. Lincoln believed we have to do to them what they are doing to us, or they will never stop. And soon after the order was issued, the Confederates took note of it, realized that Lincoln meant what he said, and withdrew their order. Uh, our speaker tonight is Dinesh D'Souza. Um, he's now become, I mean, he's a best-selling author. He's a force of nature. Uh, he's an immigrant from Mumbai. Um, he went to Dartmouth College. That's when I met him. He was just about to graduate from there. Uh, he was in the Reagan White House. He's a filmmaker now, and he's made some dynamite films. And uh, you're going to enjoy him, Dinesh D'Souza.
I'm a product of the Reagan revolution. And, and the different America that it represented. In fact, Reagan's America was, in some ways, the America of the founders. Reagan often spoke about a, a society that was focused on the individual, the family, the local community, the church, and then the country. And these were multiple associations that Reagan defended. Reagan wasn't just an individualist. He spoke about all these things. And it's very striking now that we realize that the left is against all of them. So I would like to tell you that I'm still living in Reagan's America, but that kinder, gentler America that we recall and that many of us yearn for, and quite frankly, the America that was our formative influence that made us into who we are politically, that America is, is gone. Uh, and there might be a way to get it back, but it's not the way we think. It's actually not the Reagan way. I, I think if Reagan were alive today, he would be a fish out of water. He would be unsettled by how roiled, divisive our politics have become. But I do think there is one man who, if alive today, would not be royal, would not be discombobulated, would not be um, thrown out. And, that would, and that's Lincoln. Why? Because the waters were even more roiled in the late 1850s and, of course, the early 1860s. Now, the question I... Um, want to set before you tonight is this one. What gives, how have we gotten to this pass? If it is the case that we are a decent country founded on decent principles and we've got a constitution that was written by the wisest people who ever came together with a deep understanding of human nature, why is none of that protecting us right now? How is it the case that we not only have this divided country, but ruthless assaults on our basic liberties that seem to go unchallenged, unblocked, and we find ourselves fighting for things that should not even be up for majority referendum? How did we get here? And where does the other side get the extreme chutzpah to do this to us? What makes them think they can get away with it? To this answer, I offer a perhaps surprising answer, and that is the reason that we are in this situation is mainly because of us. And it is because of the observation of us by the other side that they behave the way that they do. Larry talked a moment ago about education. And education begins in observation. 
You observe. You observe your political adversary. You check him out. We sometimes hear these days the phrase critical race theory. Well, let's, let's not worry about the race part of it. The critical part of it begins with careful and acute observation. And this, I would submit, the left has in fact been doing to us for the past 25 years. And what have they seen and what have they concluded? Well, they've basically concluded that the conservatives, the Republicans, the patriots, the Christians are the party of the nice guys. They're the party of the people who want to get along. They're the party who say things like, turn the other cheek. They're the party that would rather live and let live. They believe in freedom. And um, they're also the principled party. They take great pride in not doing things because they are held back by principle. They strive to be better than themselves, if you will. And the left concludes, these are the perfect people for us to trample. Why? Because this is the party of the namby-pambies and the pussies and the losers and the people who will never do to us what we intend to do to them. We can rest, says the left, secure in the knowledge that if we take away their First Amendment rights and they have supreme power, they will never take away ours. We can pack the court, let's add four more members, because we're absolutely positive that even if they came into power, they wouldn't pack the court. They believe it should be nine. They're, they're committed to nine. So even if our project fails, no big deal, because it's going to impose no political cost on us whatsoever. Look at the way that our nominees, the left's nominees, and their nominees show up before the court to be, to be chosen by, to be not ratified by the Senate. Their nominees come forward and say in advance, even though we believe X, Y, and Z on religious or ideological grounds, we have no intention of imposing any of those values or principles on the law. In fact, we will consciously and deliberately set them aside. We will be governed by what the Constitution says, and if the Constitution is ambiguous, we will excavate the original intentions of the framers. Now, I mean, this is Amy Coney Barrett, right before the Senate. My Catholicism will have nothing to do with the way I make decisions. Now, can you imagine Eleanor Kagan or Sotomayor or my lesbianism will have nothing to do with the way I make decisions on the court? They'd never say that. They wouldn't dream of saying that. Why? Because it is understood that they're on the court for that reason to precisely impose those ideological principles on the country. So it's almost as if we are forswearing the use of our own weapons in advance, putting them down, and they, when they look for nominees, try to think about why even though we've had the vast majority of nominees to the court 
have been Republicans going all the way back to the 70s and 80s? Why is it the case that only now, 50 years later, we have a narrow majority? Why haven't we had a majority all the way? Because we couldn't count on Sandra Day O'Connor, and then we couldn't count on Souter, and we couldn't count on Anthony Kennedy. And then you can't count on Roberts. So, so this is our predicament. When the left nominates judges, they, we consider things like, does this judge have a deep love of the law? Do they, do they enjoy learning? Are they dedicated to the understanding of the original motives of the founders? The left doesn't care about any of this. They ask this question. Will this nominee vote on all critical issues our way with Euclidean certainty? They don't sit around, how's Ruth Bader Ginsburg going to vote? How is, you know, Judge Katanji Jackson going to vote? They know how they're going to vote. They're picked on the court to vote. Now, the deep state. What makes the left think they can deploy the organs of the IRS, the FBI, the, um, the DOJ against political opponents? Again, they do it because they know that we never will. We wouldn't dream of it. If Obama went after me for making my film about Obama, is it even conceivable? Not even that Bush, but anyone, Trump, DeSantis, anyone, would dream of arresting Michael Moore, locking him up, finding something to get him on, some tax violation or some other violation, interview him for seven hours, lying to a federal official. I mean, the federal statute book is an accordion. Once you know who you're going after, it's not that hard to find out a way to do it. But we wouldn't do it. That's the point. We don't believe because we are too principled. We hold ourselves back. But now we face an interesting problem, I think, and it's a problem that goes right to the core issue of the American founding, which is how can we expect, at the end of the day, our basic liberties to be protected at all by a piece of paper? Principles, however articulate, however noble, how do they do us one bit of good? All the other side has to do is to say, we don't pay a lot of attention to that document. It's kind of like trying to use the Bible to convert somebody who goes, I don't accept the authority of the Bible to adjudicate the question. And then what do you say? So we are in a predicament because of the kind of people we are politically. And my message is we will stop being in this situation when we start becoming a little different kind of a person. And my example for tonight is none other than Abraham Lincoln. So Abraham Lincoln, for the first time in the early 1860s, began to deploy black troops in the Civil War. Not a lot of them. The Civil War was intended to be, and for the most part, was a white man's fight. But at some point, there was a black division. If you've seen the movie Glory, it dramatizes black troops in the Civil War, and there were some, but the idea of having black troops fighting on the Union side was so anathema to the Confederacy 
that Jefferson Davis signed an edict that basically said any black Union soldier captured by the Confederacy would be executed. Now, this would not apply to white soldiers. They would be normal prisoners of war. But the concept of having a black guy fighting was such an affront that the South decided that they should dispose of them in this way. And the news of this came to the desk of Abraham Lincoln. And in a scene I've dramatized in one of my movies, you see Lincoln on a train. He's enveloped in smoke. And he's signing what historians today call the Order of Retaliation. Order of Retaliation, 1863. I now summarize rather than quote. It basically says, for every black Union soldier captured and executed by the Confederacy, one Confederate captive will be shot. Now, I ask you, why would Abraham Lincoln, a moderate man, selected from the moderate wing of the party, he was chosen over Seward because Seward was seen as a little too fanatical. Lincoln was, in today's parlance, a bit of a rhino. And yet, this moderate man makes an order of such barbarity that today it shocks the conscience, it would not survive the Geneva Convention, it would be deemed a war crime. Why would Lincoln do it? I think the answer, if you think about it, is really simple. And there's only one answer. Lincoln believed we have to do to them what they are doing to us, or they will never stop. And soon after the order was issued, the Confederates took note of it, realized that Lincoln meant what he said, and withdrew their order. So the point I'm trying to make is that the road, in this case, to stopping the Confederacy on this point was not, notice that Lincoln didn't say, let me send a diplomatic mission. Let me, let me, let me pen a strongly worded op-ed. Let me provide appropriate constitutional citations. Let me start with the premise that the Confederacy doesn't understand the situation and ongoing enlightenment for me will, will be to the rescue. No. Lincoln decided that these guys need to be met with, let's call it, countervailing force. Now, what does this really mean? I think what it means is that we have to take stock of where we are. Most of us have done that. But take stock of what we're up against. And most of us have not done that. Because we still operate in the Reaganite mode, even though the circumstances are completely different. The conservatism of the 1980s in that sense is obsolete. Why? Because in the 1980s, this whole concept of educating the other side is based on a hidden assumption that when you make it explicit, you realize it's no longer operative. The hidden assumption is that we agree about goals, but we disagree about means. 
So in other words, this is sort of like saying, we all agree that we want to go to Chicago. We're arguing about whether we should take the bus or take the train or fly. That's an argument about how to get there. And in 1980, if you walked around the country and you said to people things like, do you think America should be great? Do you think America should be strong? Do you believe that the founders were honest and noble men who who created a great country? Do you think that the American idea is a good idea, a good recipe for the world? Would you like to see American influence spread worldwide? I think most people would have said, yeah. They agreed about the goal. They disagree about the means. You think America should be a prosperous country? You think we should have law and order, clean streets, safe streets? Yeah, yeah. The argument is over how, and and also the argument is over, all right, if we're prosperous, we have a big pie, all right, how, how do we cut the slices? How do we distribute this prosperity? Today, we have opponents who have a very different idea of America and different doesn't begin to describe it. Because what we think is up, they think is down. What they want to do is to create an America that would, if they were fully successful, be a living nightmare for us. And the key point is, they're not willing to let us do our own thing. If you opt out, they're going to go after you. This is the key. They don't believe in peaceful coexistence. And so whenever people say things like, we have to remember, Dinesh, that we have to stay united. Division is our problem. Division's not our problem. There actually are many ways to live even as a divided country. It's kind of like, what do you do if you and your neighbor don't get along? Don't go over there. (laughs) He's not going to come over here. That's why we have a fence. You can do whatever you want in your house. But what if he doesn't accept that arrangement? If his idea is that he's going to decide, he's going to provide sex education, not just to his children, but to yours. That's a whole different situation. So the left has decided that they have come up with a scheme to get us to subsidize their America. We're going to send money to the schools. We're going to pay, save, and send, send our kids off to college. Obviously, I don't mean Hillsdale. And they will then use those institutions to corrupt our kids, from our point of view, to turn them against us by establishing engines of indoctrination, which they have successfully now done, having taken over these institutions. And in the 1980s, we thought, well, they have their institutions. You know, yeah, they got the media for the most part. They've got academia for the most part. They've got Hollywood. But we've got some things. We've got country music. We got the Boy Scouts. We got the military. We got the FBI. We got the police agencies, a government where patriotic Americans go because they love the country. But now we realize that they have not only infiltrated, but largely penetrated and to some degree taken over those too. Why? 
because they want it all. They're not content with us doing our own thing. They don't want us to have our own institutions. I mean, they're going after this miserable, poor Christian baker in Colorado. And even though he goes to the Supreme Court and wins, sue him again. Ruin his life. Why? It's not because of him. We have to send a message to everybody else that we can do this to you. And they can, and they will. For me, you know, a lot of my American experience has been a dream, an American dream. And as we all know, only America has a dream. I mean, as far as I know, there's no Indian dream. Well, when I was a teenager, the the Indian dream of my generation was, how do we get the heck out of India? Everybody I knew was trying to get out one way or the other. I don't think there's a Chinese dream. If there's a French dream, I don't think I want to know what it is. (laughs) But the American dream is the dream of the self-directed life. And this is a dream that is anathema to the left. And if we don't stop them, they'll rig our elections... I mean, I'm not going to really go into the 2,000 mule story here. But I was just watching CNN. They were talking about this Brian Kohlberger case in, um, in Idaho. And I was listening to this giddy anchor. And she's like, they really got him. And, I was, and they, she goes, they have cell phone geotracking that actually shows, it pinpoints his location going round and round the, the home of the suspects before the murder. And then, if, as if that were not enough, they have occasional sightings of his Hyundai Elantra on surveillance video. And putting the cell phone geo-tracking together with the surveillance, with the one supporting the other, Case closed. And I'm thinking, wow. This was precisely the this was precisely the methodology of 2000 mules. And the funny thing about it is not only does it get banned at Fox, by the way, for a while there I was sort of fooled by this because I'd be talking to these Fox anchors. They'd be like, Oh Dinesh, my lawyer is reviewing it to see if the film is accurate. It took me a little while to realize that no lawyers were reviewing it and the edict had simply come from above. And it applied to all of them. And you can even see this because the one time somebody, I think it might have been Carrie Lake, mentioned 2,000 mules on Fox and you look at the face of the anchor, she goes pale. She's like dismayed, almost ready to get up and run out of her seat. So here's a case where I make a film... And I just sometimes think to myself, you know, I can just imagine if I was, let's just say I was Michael Moore. A heck of a, a, heck of a thought experiment, as they say. But if I were Michael Moore and I made this exact same film using this exact same evidence in 2016 about Trump, Trump stole the election. 
I'm going to show you that there were thousands of activists, paid activists, who stopped at the Heritage Foundation, the NRA, Christian megachurches, collecting satchels of ballots, and then proceeded on mailman-style routes to drop boxes. And you have them on video dropping these ballots in the boxes. If I did this on the left, there would not only be a deafening uproar, but they would have gone into the White House, grabbed Trump, and dragged him out of there. That's what would have happened. Instead, instead, what I get is the fact checkers, which I can deal with. I mean, most of these fact checkers are complete morons. You know, there's a certain halo of been fact checked by AP. Well, I mean, who's AP? AP is this twit, you know, Ali Swenson, age 28, graduate of what? Portland State. What does she know about geo-tracking? Nothing. What does she know about election law? Well, Dinesh, in some states, it is legal to, to deposit the ballots of your family members. Oh, yeah, Ali, which states are those? How many of the five states we cover in the movie is that rule applicable to? Well, I don't know. I'm just telling you that in certain states, this is what we're dealing with. But, of course, what's harder to deal with is people on our own side who apply a sort of skepticism where they say, and I'm not saying that, the, that there are no arguments to be had. Here is you know, Ben Shapiro, for example. He goes, I don't know. I want to see video of the same mule at multiple ballot boxes. Now, the fact of the matter is, even though it's called for in the election rules, most states didn't do this. There are whole states where there was no surveillance. In Maricopa County, they had surveillance cameras, but they were turned off. In other places, you have surveillance cameras, but the camera is pointed at a tree, not at the drop box. Or it's, it's at such a distance that all you can see is a fuzzy guy and you can't see his face. In Fulton County, where we got some of our surveillance video, out of 10 drop boxes, you have surveillance cameras on approximately one. So it's a little bit like this. You have a serial killer. And let's just say that on a particular day or a particular week, the guy goes to 10 different homes and murders people. You have dead bodies in all those homes. And the guy's cell phone, which by the way is like a fingerprint. All our cell phones have inside of them a distinctive ID. It's not the phone number, but it's the cell phone ID. And the cell phone ID places this individual at all those 10 locations on the day and time of the murders as independently established by, let's say, a medical examiner. But as it turns out, there's only one home that has a video camera. And yet, looking at the guy's cell phone data, you can see that on Tuesday, early in the morning, 2.15 a.m., he entered this particular residence. You turn on the video camera, you go to Tuesday, that date, that time, you look on the video, the door opens, he walks in. There he is. Now, isn't that definitive? Does it make any sense to say, well, you know what, I, I refuse to accept that this guy is the killer unless I can see video of him at all the 10 locations. 
if there was video at those locations, he surely would be there. But since there was no video, on the one case where there is video, it provides independent corroboration of what the cell phone data is showing. It seems to me that that's pretty conclusive, or at least that establishes a strong presumption warranting further investigation. So the absence of investigation into 2,000 mules is partly the uh, phenomenon of, the, of the, the venues we selected, most of which, of course, are heavily Democratic areas, Atlanta, Philadelphia, Milwaukee, Detroit. So you, I didn't expect the Democratic you know, sheriffs or DAs in those counties to spring into action. But I noticed that even in Republican areas in Arizona, and in Georgia, where you had a Republican governor, a Republican secretary of state, in Arizona, a Republican attorney general, Bernovich, they were extremely nervous. Now, you would think that if they had real concerns, they'd be like, you know, let's bring in through the vote, let's bring in Dinesh, we'll watch the film, we'll then ask them for clarification, we'll expose things that make no sense to us. They did none of that. Bernovich refused to see the movie. Why? Debbie and I are close friends with a very important Republican senator. Not a rhino, not a middle-of-the-roader. And we told him before the movie came out, hey, come over to our house. We have our media room. We'd like to screen the film. We just think you should know about it. No reply. Why? Not because... He was worried that the film was nonsense. Quite to the contrary. He was worried it wasn't. He was worried if he saw it, he wouldn't be able to unsee it. And then he might have some pressure to do something about it. But our side, and I'm talking now again, I'm not talking about Mitt Romney or the Rhinos or Liz Cheney. The mainstream of the Republican Party is terrified of this subject. Terrified. You can argue that some of it has to do with Trump, but some of it goes beyond Trump. It is the fear that is secretly installed in our hearts by the left and the knowledge of what they can do to us. And what makes this threat credible is that they can do it to us and they are willing to do it to us. When I was sitting across from the Obama Justice Department lawyers in my campaign finance case, they're like, Dinesh, did you exceed the campaign finance laws? I go, regrettably, I did. Uh, and I guess I should take the penalty that anyone else gets for doing the same thing. And they were like, not so fast. And I was like, well, what do you mean? They go, well, you, you gave $20,000 over the limit. And I go, yeah. They go, we're going to get you on bank fraud. And I go, bank fraud? They go, yeah, because... You took your money out of your bank account. And I go, wow. They go, we're also going to get you on mail fraud. I go, mail fraud? They go, yeah, because you put the check in the mail. And I turned to my lawyer, um, and I said, what's going on? Ben Brathman, a prominent Democrat. And he goes, he goes Dinesh, they're, they're going after you the way they go after ISIS or the mafia. And I realized looking over at those guys that, you know, they were asking the judge to put me away in federal prison for two years. 
But I honestly believe to the bottom of my heart that if they could have put me away for 20 years, they would have done it. That's the key. To, to them, I was not a critic. It didn't matter a one whit. I was an immigrant. If I had stood up and used my Larry Online, I'm brown. That wasn't going to do the job. They didn't care. To them, I was an enemy, and their job was to take me out. End of story. That's how they think. That's what we're up against. So I ask you, what kind of half-baked politics is it to say things like, I really don't think that Joe Biden understands what we're up against in foreign policy. I really think that they need to have a thorough talking to about what's really happening. Confiscatory taxes, excessive regulation, trampling on people's rights, censorship. These are un-American. Of course they're un-American. That's why they're doing them. They have a very different idea of America than we do. And so this is the point I want to drive to. We have two choices. We don't have a choice to enlighten them. We don't have a choice to say to them, you have your way, I'll do my way. You say tomato, I say tomato. Our only choice is to submit to them, which is another way of saying to live in their America, or to figure out a way to take them down. There's no other option. Now, let me... My time is limited, and I could, you know... I'm only getting warmed up here, but... <laughs> if my wife were here, she'd be giving me signals. But let me, let me pivot... Larry told me, you got to tell us how we kind of get our way out of these things. Larry's a great, hopeful, solutions man. And, um, and um, I want to I pick up the topic of woke corporations and give you a small case study, which happens to be a true story, about how to deal with this. Because the way we deal with these things makes no sense. Dinesh, I've canceled my subscription to Disney Plus. <laughs> Dinesh, I, I, I no longer shop at Target. I'm like, well, that's good. Did you, did you send an email to the local Target telling them why? Oh, no, I, I just don't go there anymore. Well, do you expect the people at Target to take note of this fact? Mrs. Finkelstein hasn't been coming here lately. What could it be? Oh, of course. The all-gender bathroom. We better take that one down. No. None of this is going to work. Why? It shows no comprehension of power. If the left wanted to shut down Disney+, Plus, they would do it inside of a week. In fact... Ten guys at the University of Texas at Austin could do it by themselves. How? First thing they would do is they would set up the coalition to fight racism. 
Then they would send a strongly worded email to Disney Plus saying, we are announcing our national boycott of five media organizations as the most bigoted organizations in the country. You are number two on our list. Our announcement is, uh, is coming on Monday. We would like to hear from you before that so we can let you know what our demands are. 30 minutes after that email arrives, there are going to be Zoom calls among senior officials at Disney for how to deal with the committee, the Coalition Against Racism. So this is called using power effectively. Turning now to my case study, in 2014, I published a book, America, Imagine a World Without Her, an argument for a kind of rational patriotism, with a film of the same title to come two weeks later. My book was in Barnes & Noble, it was in Amazon, and it was also, as it turns out, in Costco. And then, no sooner does the book have the pub date than I get a call from a friend of mine, a guy named Jerry Corsi, who writes for a website called WorldNet Daily. He goes, Dinesh, your book has been pulled from every Costco in the United States. And I go, Jerry? I go, eh, that's not it. That's, it doesn't happen like that. I go, I know what happened. Some weirdo at some Costco, your local Costco evidently, you know, some guy with a, you know, a nose stud and a man bun sees my book in Costco. He gets triggered. So he begins to like palpitate, breathe heavily. And then he grabs my books and sticks them under the table. I said, I'm familiar with this. It happens to me. It happens at Barnes & Noble. And Jerry goes, no, that's not it. Your book is unavailable in Costco from Alaska to Florida. It's unavailable in the whole country. It's been pulled. And I go, Jerry, that makes no sense. Costco's not a bookstore. Nobody asked them to order my book in the first place. Why would they order it and then pull it? But I check around. I have my assistant call around to five Costco's. Sure enough, the book's been pulled. It's true. So now I think to myself, how would that happen? How does something like this occur? And I figured it out. The CEO of Costco, a man named Jelonic, is a huge Obama fan. In fact, I would go so far as to call him an Obama worshiper. He's invited periodically to the Lincoln bedroom, where he gets to jump up and down on the bed. <laughs> kind of exciting. And so this man, Mr. Jelonic, I think what happened is something like this. Some guy, Rahm Emanuel, somebody like that, walks into Costco, some Obama guy walks into Costco and they see my book. And they call up Mr. Jelonic. You know, Mr. Jelonic, the big man's not gonna like it. You may not be invited anymore to the Lincoln bedroom. No more jumping up and down. So Mr. Jelonic has to now do a, a weighing, a scale. On the one hand, sell a few more books and make a few more dollars for Costco's bottom line with Dinesh's book, or keep getting invited to jump up and down in the Lincoln bedroom. I think I'm going to go with the Lincoln bedroom. Pull the book. That's how it happens. And under normal circumstances, that would be the end of the story. Except in this case, the story takes a very interesting turn because Jerry Corsi writes his article, fulminating, he's a very good writer, on WorldNet Daily, and it creates a firestorm. It actually happens to be right around the 4th of July, so people are really freaking out. Dinesh is an immigrant, it's the 4th of July, you're pulling his book, it's a book celebrating America, what's wrong with you, Costco? A thousand people are raging, a kind of online mob, let's call it, on WorldNet Daily. 
But here's the point. Costco doesn't care. Why? Because it's on WorldNet Daily. Who cares about WorldNet Daily? Or by extension today, who cares about the Daily Caller? Who cares about Breitbart? Who cares? But then, in a very interesting episode in the history of social media, this would actually be good fodder one day for the Harvard Business School case study approach, somebody in this online mob decides, why are we over here? Let's mosey over to the Costco site, otherwise known as Costco.com. Now, the important fact to know here is that Costco does a large portion of its global business on Costco.com, e-commerce. And so what happens is this online mob, like a snowball, begins to roll to Costco, except it gathers snow. So by the time it reaches Costco, it's about 14,000 people, and they're going nuts. They're like, here's the key point. They destroy the Costco site from top to bottom. They trash it. And I don't mean, we're against censorship, please restore Dinesh's, none of that. They go through Costco product by product and trash every single product. The food sucks, the clothes are horrible, they're cheaply made, they tear easily, the grills don't really work. They destroy the site and they post videos and photos of executive members of Costco cutting up their cards with evident relish. And so, now, Costco has a problem, which I discover when my publisher calls me and they say, Mr. Jelonic, the CEO of Costco, needs to see you ASAP in his office in Seattle. He sent two first-class tickets for you to go up from San Diego. So I go, all right. And me and my business partner, Bruce Cooley, we meet at the San Diego airport. Suddenly, there's a third guy from my publisher. And this guy goes, listen, guys, I figured it all out. In this meeting, we have to be really nice. We have to, we have to rely on the art of persuasion. It's almost like this guy had been listening to a seminar. So Bruce and I look at each other, and we said to this guy, nice guy, we go, Mark, your job at this meeting is not to speak. <laughs> Say nothing. And we arrive in Seattle, we walk into Costco. It's a scene I'll remember for a long time. Walk in, first of all, there's Mr. Jelonic. <laughs> he's, he looks like he's quite a sight. Kind of a short guy, hair all tuzzled, as if he stuck his finger in the socket, <laughs> sweating. You know, his, his tie is sort of like four and a half inches from the top, kind of like the old managers at Montgomery Ward. <laughs> you know? And, and he's pointing his finger at me. He goes, he goes, you're destroying Costco. And I'm thinking to myself, I am single-handedly destroying a multi-billion dollar corporation? Fantastic. <laughs> I mean, who's next? So I sit down and he goes, he goes, you know, you're going on Hannity. You're going on Megyn Kelly. You're, you're blacklisting Costco. He goes, you know, I could get fired over this. And I go, Mr. Jelonic, look, I go, first of all, I'm not one to ask, but if you ask me, and since you're asking me, I think you should be fired. <laughs> Why? Because it's quite obvious that you're the worst CEO in the country. You have a company with massive brand loyalty. A single executive member spends thousands of dollars on your products every year. 
and you have your own best customers on your own website making videos of cutting up their card voluntarily. I didn't make them do it. They chose to do it. So what kind of an idiot do you have to be to create the situation? So then you could tell he was, you know, very Jesse Jackson, like he swallows. He's like, what, what are your demands? I go, I'm not Jesse Jackson. I don't have any demands. I don't care if you stock my book. I go, frankly, I sell most of my books in Barnes and Noble. You don't have to order it. You don't have to stock it. I don't care. And I walk out. And as the moment I land in San Diego, my publisher calls, well, what happened? I go, what do you mean? I go, well, Costco has been in touch with us. Number one, they're going to be restoring all your books to all the stores. Number two, they've ordered 25,000 more copies. (laughs) Number three, when we inform them that you have a new film coming out, they are now constructing special standees that will feature only your film. Everybody else's film DVDs are on the big table, but we're making a standee just for your film. And to this day, now eight years later, I have excellent relationships with Costco. No problem. It's all good. So I only mention this because to me, it is an illuminating study in the exercise of the kind of power that actually makes the other side jump. And this is a very good, it may seem a little perverse to say, and I'm occasionally told that I'm that way, Somebody asked me the other day, they were like, Dinesh, we really admire your courage because you were in confinement. I go, my courage? I go, frankly, to me, the whole thing was somewhat amusing. They go, amusing? Weren't you incarcerated? I go, yeah, but I go, my attitude toward that was, I said to myself, look, Dinesh, you have a unexpected academic opportunity to be parachuted into Papua New Guinea. You are like an anthropologist in a strange land. You will have a unique opportunity to study the natives. And the thing about the natives is these are people, for example, who largely communicate by writing on their own bodies. It's, it's sort of an unusual group. But honestly, guys, in no time, I was fine. After a very early meeting, which is fairly standard in these situations, what are you in for? You know, guys are in for, like, rape, smuggling, coyotes, murder. I go, um, I gave too much of my own money. And there was a long pause. They were like, they were trying to make sense of that. How can you be incarcerated for giving too much of your own money? Not taking someone else's money, but giving your own money. So pretty soon I was on pretty good terms with all these characters. But the lesson I'm trying to make is I think we need to attune ourselves to realizing what we're up against. And we have to fight in that mode. Another way to put it, Larry said poignantly earlier this evening, it's 1859. And and I agree Not in the sense that we are on the verge of a civil war of the kind that we had a century and a half ago. 
But who will deny that we are in some sort of a cold civil war? And who will deny that the Democratic Party now as then has become gangsterized? And who will deny that they have to be treated that way, which is to say that you have to tame a gangster the same way you tame a bully. You can't say, I'm too principled to kick him in the shins. I don't want to kick him in the shins with a bunch of my friends because I'm going to be just like him. That's the only thing that will stop him being that way. I can't think of another solution, can you? So I'll close on this and I'm, I'm over time. Um, many years ago, a professor of mine told me the story about the lion tamer and the lion. So here's the lion. Here's the lion. Big, scary lion. Here is the lion tamer. Kind of a puny guy. A little bit of a Justin Trudeau metrosexual type. A, a little man twirling a stick. But here is the lion obediently responding to the machinations of the lion tamer. And the question now arises, who is in fact more powerful, the lion tamer or the lion? Well, it's obvious, the lion. But now you have a kind of conundrum. If the lion is more powerful, why is the lion so sycophantically obeying the instructions of the lion tamer. And when you think about it, there's really only one answer to that question, namely, that the lion doesn't know its own power. The lion thinks the lion tamer is more powerful. And that's us. We're in the position of people who have enormous, untapped power. And a large reason we don't use it, we think too highly of ourselves. We're too principled. We're parchment people. You know, probably for me, one of the deepest insights I've ever had into the US Constitution is that no document, however wise, can ever prevent serious evils from occurring in any society. That if there's one thing that will stop them, it is a rational and justified fear of us. That's what will cause them to respect our First Amendment rights. In fact, even some of the provisions of the Constitution, like, like the provision of religious freedom, it wasn't so much of an article of faith, it was an article of peace. The Puritans would have been happy to keep oppressing people. They wanted to establish a Christian commonwealth. What stopped them? What stopped them, the fact, you know, hey, we're the big boys in Massachusetts, but gee, the Catholics are sort of running Maryland. And you got the Anglicans over here, and you got the Congregationalists over there, and the Presbyterians over here, and you know what? It's kind of easier for all of us to agree to respect each other's religious freedom. So tolerance becomes the hard-won product of a mutual recognition of contending groups, many of which would have been perfectly happy to be persecutors themselves, that it's not in their interest to do that because it's going to be done to them. So this is the point. We study and we learn as Lincoln did. And it's vital that we rescue our educational system. And Hillsdale, I think, can 
light the way. And so I'm honored and delighted to be part of that. But that battle is part of a bigger battle over our society and our culture. And I'll leave you with the thought that I think if we're going to save America, we've got to realize that if we don't want to live in their America, we have to create our own. We have to create our own America inside of America and live in it and protect it and defend it. And what that means is we need our own schools, our own universities, our own movies, our own comedy, our own everything. The alternative is we pay them to ruin us. And to that alternative, I say a respectful no. And I leave you with what Lincoln said in his message to Congress, 1862, the fiery trial through which we pass will light us in honor or in dishonor down to the latest generation. Maybe we, we be worthy of that fight. Maybe understand it and have the courage to carry it forward. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much.